0: Well, good morning. good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Let's see. Ooh. Oh, is the race starting right now? <laughs> it's sort of funny because when you live in Indianapolis, sort of everything revolves around the 500 that always happens the Sunday prior to Memorial Day. So, um, spent many a Sunday not in church, but at the Cathedral of Racing, as it's called. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really not a good alternative, but uh, anyway, one thing I want to mention before I start, we're about two weeks away or so from, actually three I guess, from our Strawberry Fair outreach, okay, we're going to pray for people, right, if you're not sure how to do that, if you've taken the School of Kingdom Ministry, you ought to be, you ought to already know how to do this, if you haven't, we're going to train you. And we're going to do that on the 9th, okay? So just right after service, we're going to do a training. But I've got a sign-up sheet here. I, I'd li- my goal is to have four people, in addition to any staff that's there, but four individuals for every hour of the Strawberry Fair, okay? Now, you can, you can say, I'd like to be there all day if you want, and that's fine. Or you say, well, I'd like to maybe pray for a couple hours, then I'm going to take a break and wander around and then come back and pray some more after that, that's fine too. Um, so, I'm going to put this back there on that table, um, or maybe I'll get somebody else to do that, and uh, just sign it, you know, sign, go ahead and sign up. We'll keep pr- uh, pushing this for the next couple of weeks, because I really see this as being a tremendous outreach for the church. Not only a tremendous outreach <coughs> for the church, but a tremendous blessing on the community. Because as I look through the list of the people that have signed up to, like the other not-profits, and especially churches, most of them are just providing ministry information. Right? Which is fine. It's wonderful. We gave out water for a number of years, which was a, a great way to bless the community. But this is really being able to do something and actually bring the kingdom of God to bear on people's lives in in a very real way. Right? So please, you know, you do not have to be if you've never done this before, we will give you the, uh, the training that you need to go and do this. And there'll be those of us that have prayed for people a lot, be right there with you. We can partner with you. So please don't hesitate just simply because you're not sure what to do. It's a lot of fun, trust me, right? Because you would think people would, would say, no, nah, that's okay. Har- hardly anybody ever says no <laughs> if you say, hey, can I pray for you? Right Now, someone might ask, well, who are you going to pray to? Which is actually a very good question to ask before somebody prays for you. Right. You want to make sure you know who they're praying to. But um, other than that, people are very, very receptive to this, for the most part. So anyway, that's my shameless plug for uh, today. Is the that one day? It's one day. It's from 10 to noon. Okay. Or excuse me, 10 to 5. Right. 10 to 5. All right. And like I said, and it's really, it's a lot of fun. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. You can wander around. You can get food. Um, Yeah, there'll be a tent there. We'll pop-up tent chairs. So uh, it's usually hot. uh, And I'm working to get us T-shirts. So uh, we will hopefully have those that will identify us as well. All right. Well, Father God, I just, uh, I pray your your blessing on this message, that it would uh, strike deep into the hearts and minds of the hearers, Give those who uh, are here ears to hear, hearts that are open. Just ask for your blessing on it now, Lord. And I ask so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, late May of 2010, you may remember there was a tropical storm named Agatha. It was obviously the first one of the year. And when it finally had, had gone all the way through, it, it had hit Guatemala, Guatemala City I- extremely hard, and um, when the storm was finally over, it left this. This is a 300-foot deep sinkhole, right in the middle of the city, or close to it. Now, you know, like all sinkholes, this one caused the ground to collapse suddenly, but you know, in this case, because of where it was, it sucked land, electricity, electrical poles, a three-story factory building, and even a security guard went down into that. Uh, The government also was working with about 300 neighbors in the area of this sinkhole whose lives and homes were still somewhat in danger because of it. Now according to a report in the Christian Science Monitor, sinkholes in the United States are most common in Florida, Texas, Alabama, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania, not Virginia, thankfully. Um, and the reason for that is that the ground beneath these states is very rich in an easily dissolvable type of rock. And once enough water kind of seeps in and begins to dissolve that rock, um, it just collapses and it creates this crater that we know is a sinkhole. And so what you have is that land, which looks extremely strong and solid, all of a sudden just collapses. So what looked very strong on the surface all of a sudden just disappears and creates havoc for anybody who happened to be in the vicinity of of that hole. And the unfortunate thing is that oftentimes our own interior lives, can sometimes resemble the danger zone of a sinkhole, right? We get too busy to spend time with God, or we refuse to deal with uh, a past hurt, or a sinful behavior, or a secret addiction, or some other kind of character flaw. And what happens is we're basically setting ourselves up for a collapse. And the problem is that nobody ever knows that because on the outside much like the sinkhole you look just fine. Problem is on the inside. And so you know it's it's the storms of life sometimes it's just the process of living that all of a sudden expose these hidden vulnerabilities and it just causes this spiritual or relational sinkhole to open up. Now, I did some research on this particular sinkhole, the one in Guatemala Guatemala City, and according to a National Geographic article I came across, there are some experts that claim it shouldn't be labeled as a sinkhole at all. Now why is that? Well, See, a true sinkhole is an entirely natural phenomenon. And the the reason for this particular sinkhole, and one that occurred about three years earlier in 2007 that was very near this, was a poorly constructed infrastructure of pipes that leaked. gradually but constantly eroded the soil that was beneath it, creating the perfect conditions for a sinkhole to appear. And then once this hurricane goes through, with that overabundance of water, it finally was the essential straw that broke the camel's back. So in other words, this sinkhole was man-made. And that is, in effect, what James is telling us in our text today. The temptations that befall us are a result of our own doing. Most certainly not from God, and oftentimes not from Satan. They too are man-made, just like the sinkhole. So let's get into the text, shall we? We're going to be looking at uh, James, uh, chapter 1, and in today we'll look at verses 12 through 18. So James 1:12 through 18. So starting with verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So we've got a, a, a double result that's promised to those who will faithfully endure their trials. First is this inner reward of blessedness. Now, this is the very same term that appears constantly throughout the Beatitudes, blessed is the. It describes this inner quality of joy, of resting in God, and also this idea of being unaffected by external events. And and we talked about this last week, this difference between joy and happiness. Happiness being largely external, joy being largely internal. Okay. And... The, the neat thing is that in the New Testament, it oftentimes describes people um, that we would never even think of as being blessed or fortunate in any sense, such as the persecuted, right? And if you, you see that in the Beatitudes. It's always this sort of underclass almost of people that Jesus is talking about. And th- the thing as it regards this is that it's not having the trial that's the blessing, Clearly. <laughs> but it's the stalwart endurance of the trial that brings about the blessing. That's what we're, what we're looking for. And then the second blessing is this gift from God called the crown of life. Now this is not some kind of an ornamental crown that we typically think of as associated with a, a monarch of some kind. Uh, this is more along the lines of what Paul spoke about in some of his letters, where we're talking about this garland wreath that was placed upon the head of someone who won an athletic event. This goes back to, to Grecian culture. Um, and so what this really is referring to is this is part of God's reward for faithful in faithfully enduring uh, trials. It's not Excuse me, it's not a position of royalty over others. It's a recognition from God of of achieving a spiritual victory. And so this crown isn't a physical object, but it's a spiritual privilege to have a deeper, fuller life here on earth and an unending, joyous life in uh, in the world to come. Enduring trials for his glory shows us that we truly love God. And, that, and we find that God has stored up these marvelous blessings for those who, who do love him. And I think it's always encouraging to know that uh, the rewards and acknowledgments are to be expected after we've completed something difficult, right? You know, you, you, you go through a, an arduous process. I can remember when um, Sally was studying for her uh, project management certification. And um, it was a pretty arduous process for like a week. It was this, this intense class. You know, she <laughs> she had this tape that she was supposed to listen to while she slept. And then it was like eight hours of class. And I mean, it was grueling. But at the end of that was she'd passed the test, right? So it was worth going through the trials because of the end result. Um, And I think this is especially important when we know that we're going through something that either has required or is going to require a lot of willpower, a lot of self-control, a lot of effort. And see, James says that a believer who endures those trials demonstrates a love of God. And because of that, they receive the crown of life. All right? That's verse 12. Now, Let's look at a few more. So this is 13 and 14. Actually, we're going to look at uh, four here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, unless you have read both the English and the Greek New Testament, you won't notice that in this week's text there's a transition that that James is making from verse 12 to verse 13. Now, James may not have even known he was making this transition because in verse 12 we find the word trial. Let's go back and look. Alright, under trial, right? Okay. And then here, because it's here in 13, we find this word tempted. Okay. The interesting thing is that it's the exact same word in the Greek, parasmos. And what this should tell us is that there's a very close relationship between a trial and a temptation. Okay? And What we need to be careful of, and I I imagine this could be why translators have chosen to do it this way, to, to make those as different words in those different texts. We could make the mistake that because God will on occasion use a trial to bring us closer to him, to give us more spiritual maturity, we might assume that God would tempt us to sin for the same reason. And so what James is doing in this text is he's addressing that question, does God tempt me to sin? Well, the answer is a resounding no. Two insights about God show you that he's not responsible for evil. right? First, God cannot be tempted by evil. He has no weakness or tendency which any kind of temptation could exploit. God's character puts him out of reach of temptation, right? Evil has no appeal to God. It's repulsive to him. And it's also totally contrary to his nature that we read about and find in many other places in scripture. The second thing is is that it makes absolutely no sense that a God whose goal is to develop mature believers who are closer and closer to Christ, that he would then use temptation to sin as a means to achieve that goal. It just, it it, it makes no sense from a rational standpoint. Now, just as a a way to emphasize this, has anybody here ever had any kind of a, like a personal trainer or anything that has helped them with their diet, right? Maybe held them accountable for dietary restrictions. All right, I probably I didn't really figure that maybe there would, but you understand the principle, right? This is a person who's sort of telling you, you can eat that, you can't eat this, right? If the goal is to lose weight, reduce your blood pressure, whatever, okay, for health reasons. And so, uh, let's just say as well that, that you love cookies. Yep. <coughs> okay, I think I'll preach it. And let's also just say for the sake of argument that it's now the holidays, right? Where you can bump into a cookie pretty much anywhere you go, right? So, you know, they're everywhere. So this, it's doubly hard to resist, right? So how would you feel if your trainer, who is now holding you accountable for not eating this kind of stuff, starts tempting you with cookies? He brings cookies over to your house. He asks you if you'd like some after you've already refused once. Oh, come on. It's just a cookie. You can have one. Now, you expect your family and friends to do this, right? Especially the ones who um, don't have the kind of discipline that you're trying to achieve, right? But it's, it's bizarre to imagine that your trainer, who you've hired to help you with your health, Is now trying to entice you with something that is not part of your dietary plan. Right? And so, you know, in the same way, God knows what's best for us. And He's not going to tempt you in the same way that a friend is going to tempt you uh, because it's just totally against His character to do so. Then when we get into verses 14 and 15, and this is really outlines sort of how does sin work? How does sin begin? And um, what's interesting is that James uses some some fishing terminology in, in these verses, right? This openness to temptations develops from weaknesses in the human heart. Lured and enticed are truly technical terms from the language of fishing, okay? The first word describes the act of luring a fish from their hiding place. The second word pictures the enticing of a fish with a worm on a hook, right? Evil desire is the bait which hooks the human being. See, the Bible is not gonna let us blame hereditary, heredity, not hereditary, not blame heredity It's not going to let you blame an evil environment. It's not going to let you blame wicked companions for your sin. The blame rests squarely where? Yeah, on me or you, uh, on the individual. Okay? And then, verse, we kind of switch, and now he's going to use the language of childbirth to describe uh, the development of evil desire. He says, that a conception occurs when people surrender their wills to desire, right? And so that conception produces a child named sin. And then when sin finally becomes full grown, it it produces death. And so practically speaking, sin occurs whenever a person's mind approves the performance of a sinful act, right? That's it. You're done. It begins when an individual yields his will to evil. You can't blame God for this. You can't blame anybody else for this. We do it to ourselves. And so the idea that he's really he really seems to be trying to bring forth with these passages is this inescapable progression that happens, right? You know, from Well, just think about it. Normally, once the fish takes the bait, it's as good as caught, right? And even more inevitable is that once a baby is conceived, it's going to be born and it's going to grow up. And so we need to remember that, you know, the act of temptation itself isn't sinful. I I was trying to think of this joke that I heard years ago um, about these two guys... Who were uh, you know riding in a car, and they pass by this very attractive woman who's walking along on the sidewalk, and the guy turns and you know he looks, and um, the one guy says to, or it's the driver I think that looks at the at this at this attractive woman, and the other guy says you really shouldn't be doing that, and he goes well what do you mean it's 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 no sin to you know to to be tempted, and he says no but it was probably a sin. W- to drive around the block and look again. (laughs) So sin develops only when an individual assents to the deed and then agrees that whatever it is is good or desirable. And so our evil nature and our disobedient wills provide a pretty easy avenue along which temptation can stroll but sin develops only when we invite temptation to leave the avenue and come on and visit us, right? Now, what I think is interesting is that verses 14 and 15 don't mention the role of Satan in temptation at all. Now, the Bible pictures Satan as being active in temptation, but James is not necessarily presenting a complete analysis of all temptation you know that we can find he's what he's really trying to do here he's trying to show us that it's God that is not the cause of sin and so he's laying the blame for sin squarely upon human weakness and disobedience okay and then in verse 16 he gives us this solemn warning against being deceived by wrong thinking concerning the source of sin. Now you can actually apply the the verse 16 either to what was came before it or what follows, okay? If you uh, apply the words to the preceding statements which we've just covered it's a warning against excusing ourselves from the responsibility of sin, right? That's the deception in that case. What we'll find here in a moment is that if we apply this, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, to the words that follow, it's a warning against having a wrong view of God's character, right? Either interpretation would be true. So let's look at those verses. This is, now we'll look at 17 and 18. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of, of his creatures. So having learned that God isn't responsible for human sin, we are now, he's now showing us that God is responsible for everything that's good. All right? And he shows us that in his goodness that it doesn't change, it's unchanging and that he gives this good gift of new life to believers. And so we're hearing that every good gift has its source as God. Now gifts are perfect because they fully meet the needs of the recipients, of the person who's receiving the gift. And so these gifts um, include not only God's spiritual blessings, but also many other benefits, you know, which provide for either the physical or the emotional needs of human beings. And I think it's, it's kind of fascinating that the last part of verse 17 says that God does not undergo any shadow of change. Interesting terminology, right? Well, it actually comes from astronomy. And it describes, you know, the moving of the heavenly bodies that, that, are, that produce these constantly changing shadows on earth. Right? And so what I think James is trying to point out here is that God's purposes don't have that kind of variation or shifting. You know, the movements of the sun and the moon and the clouds and the earth regularly cause these changes in light and shadow throughout the day. So there's this constant, you know, it's, it's rare, that we have, you know, a perfectly cloudless day, and even on those days, the sun is, is going, because of the rotation of the earth, the sun is going to produce shadows in different places at different times. God's character is always constant, always true, always unchanging, always reliable, always good, always faithful. And then verse 18 looks at the new birth that God has given his people. And the the means of this new birth is the word of truth. It's a description of the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. And what James is saying here is that the result of this new birth is that believers become a kind of first fruits of all that that was created. Now, you may know that the first fruits represented that initial portion of the harvest that's offered to God. This goes back into the Old Testament where God... Um, commanded that this be, th- be the case. Um, they were the pledge of a full crop to come. And so in a sense that th- these first century Christians were a pledge of the vast harvest of saved people that would come uh, over the next centuries. And So James is encouraging us to take this leap of faith in trusting God to lead us to endure through trials and provide strength for temptations. And we can trust him because he is faithful. So I was thinking about the big idea. And, you know, y- usually what I'm trying to do is to come up with some concept that sort of summarizes in, in, a, in a concise way what the author is trying to say in this particular passage. So I thought it was appropriate in this case to sort of, since James was using the language of conception and birth, that that I should too. And so the big idea today is this. James is encouraging you to practice spiritual contraception. (laughs) You didn't think that was nearly as funny as I'd hoped you would. (laughs) But not necessarily funny. I I want you to remember it, right? So what are the benefits of practicing spiritual contraception? Well I think there are three. First of all, is the result is that is you have a relationship. Now, what you've got to remember is to whom James is writing this letter. All right, we I- if you'll think back, we talked about this last week when we talked about verse one. Who is this addressed to? Does anybody remember? It was addressed to the twelve trials tribes of the dispersion. Okay, which we said was essentially. A, a way of referring to the Christians today who are the spiritual inheritors of that tradition, right, of that, of that name. Okay, so spiritual heirs of the Old Testament saints is who we're talking about. All right, so that's who James is writing to. He's writing to believers. Everybody nod, yes, okay. So why, why is that important? in this case. Well, I think it's important because in verse 15 when he mentions death, James is not referring to eternal separation from God in hell. What James is talking about here is a separation from the life that God provides. Now, there's a difference, but it's not a difference that you can take lightly. Because when we sin, what we're effectively doing is we're cutting off our access to God. Uh, and we are perhaps even putting ourselves in a position to receive discipline from God. Alright? And so the results can be, and I understand that you covered this in Sunday school this morning, but physical death is a possibility. And we only need to look to Acts chapter 5, story of Ananias and Sapphira as uh, I was talking with Rich after his class and as he says, this is nobody's favorite verse in the Bible. <laughs> oh yeah, I love that verse. No, oh, you're just weird. Um, so physical death is one possibility. Separation from fellowship. Being given into Satan's power. Sorrow is another thing that can happen. Re-enslavement to sin. Perhaps if you've managed to break free from something, and you allow yourself to be enticed back, you're right back where you started. Uh, Powerlessness in the Christian life, the inability to be able to really live like Jesus would have you live. Sickness, shame, spiritual blindness, loss of strength, wasting away, and and others. And the end result of all these things is this loss or diminishment of our relationship with God. Right. So this idea of spiritual contraception, which is the resisting of temptation, prevents all of those relationship inhibitors from ever getting in the way of our access to and fellowship with God. And so the result, if we will practice that, is we have relationship that we wouldn't ordinarily have, or that that, that sin causes a, a break in, if you will. All right, well secondly, desire doesn't get pregnant when you practice spiritual contraception. See, and and we talked about this already, the one thing that James points out is that there's actually a process to sin. Sin doesn't just happen like that. There's a process that's involved. It's the repercussion of unchecked desire. All right, so temptation comes when we've given in to our own fleshly desires and become enticed. And so he, that's why he compares this to the process of conceiving and giving birth. It's exactly the same. Pregnancy doesn't just happen. I'm sure more than one teenage girl has tried to explain it that way. I don't know how this happened. But it's a process. It starts with conception, then you have the growth of the fetus, and finally birth, the child, and, and then the child ultimately gets fully grown. And so I think James is explaining this process of sin not only to make the point that God is not the source of our temptation, but we're tempted when we're drawn away from him. And then he kind of confirms this by explaining that it's really, that God is the source of the good things in our lives as opposed to all of the troublesome ones. And I think if we'll really understand this, that it can help us take responsibility for our own actions. We know that God isn't the cause of our trouble, but sin and the influence of sin in our our world and in our own hearts is the reason. And so perhaps the best form of spiritual contraception we can practice in this scenario is abstinence. I feel pretty confident, I'm no scientist, but I feel pretty confident in saying um, that if abstinence is the form of physical contraception that you practice, you have a 100% chance of avoiding contraception, or conception. I think it's the only process that's ever been proven to be 100% uh, successful, perfect record. And so likewise, if you want to keep desire from conceiving, from getting pregnant, then abstaining from the source of temptation is also the only foolproof approach, right? If drinking is your problem, you don't go to bars and liquor stores. If pornography is your problem, then you need to, to either stay away from or put some serious safeguards onto your electronic devices. If overspending is your problem, then cut up your credit cards, seriously. You get the idea, I don't need to go on. The point is to make sure that your desire doesn't get pregnant and give birth to sin. And that's the second benefit of practicing spiritual conception. And then finally, when you practice spiritual conception, you still get showered with gifts. See, with physical pregnancy, you get showered with gifts um, once you're pregnant because uh, people are providing you with things that are necessary or important in the raising of your child. But as we say so often, the kingdom, God's kingdom, sort of works in reverse of the physical world, right? So in this case, if you avoid conception, you actually get gifts. Now this, this whole giving and receiving of gifts is kind of a tricky proposition, right? I, I, is anybody here ever known a bad gift giver? Right? Now bad gift givers either tend not to give gifts or they don't put much time or effort into giving a gift, right? You'll see this, you know, it's sometimes, knock my own gender here, it's the husband that shows up with the same thing every year you know, for the birthday, or the anniversary, or, or whatever. It's, there's no thought put into it, OK? On the other hand, a good gift giver usually thinks very long and hard about what to give somebody, right? They want to make it meaningful. And what's kind of interesting is that so often, really good gift givers will give you a gift And when you first get it, you're like, you're you're really, you you never would have thought that you would want this. And then, after a period of time, you find out that you can't live without it. This is just like the best thing you've ever had. You just didn't know that you really needed it. But that's what a good gift giver does, right? They know this is going to really bless so-and-so, and so so I'm going to get them this. So there's a lot of thought that goes into uh, giving a gift when you are a good gift giver. You get that gift you didn't think you need and you ended up loving it. And, And so God is the perfect gift giver. He just loves giving us things all the time and he relishes giving us what we need even though we may not even know that we need it. And so as we're going through trials and temptations, he doesn't always give us what we want, but he gives us something far better. He gives us his presence and his power. He gives us friends that will walk with us on this journey. And then he gives us the spiritual maturity to handle whatever it is that we're going through. Okay? So, we always try to come up with a way to what we're talking about into action in some tangible way. And so, for Faith in Action this week, here's what I want you to think about. Identify one area of your life that is susceptible to temptation. All right. Now, it may be helpful for this exercise not to pick the biggest temptation that you have. Because we all have multiple things, right? So maybe tackling the biggest one is not the way to go, but it could be. Maybe you just want to go ahead and get rid of that, and so you choose that one. But pick something, all right, one area of your life that's susceptible to temptation. all right? And then figure out, how can you practice spiritual contraception in that one area? What would it look like? What would have to change if you were to do that? Okay, so that's number two. And then finally, commit to doing it for 30 days. And then evaluate where you are at the end, right? But, and what I always hope with these is that if you can identify something small and try this and you find that it works, then that there's huge encouragement in that. And then you, it's given you the impetus to then try it with something else, to try it again with some other area that's causing you a problem, right? Some other sin that is constantly getting in the way of your walk with God. So just give this a try, you know, pick something small, I don't know what it is, you don't have to share, (laughs) but just whatever it is that's kind of one of those aggravating things that uh, is constantly coming up and getting in the way. Think about it and figure out how do you put some safeguards, how do you, you know, maybe it's an accountability partner. Um, could be a whole bunch of different things that you could end up doing. But just try to figure this out and uh, see if that doesn't, doesn't help. And so just to kind of summarize uh, where we have been both last week and this week, I would say uh, these three, these things are, are sort of, Uh, summarize what James is trying to say in these first 18 verses. First of all, that God does permit trials to develop a a level of stamina in his people, right? And we we have to look no farther than the, the book of Job to know that's true. God gives rewards to those who show their love for him by enduring the trials. What we talked about today is that God does not use evil, does not use evil to tempt you or me or any of his children to disobedience. And finally, that all good has its source in God. So, you guys want to come back up? And this is the point that we want to transition into sort of this third area of our service. We've publicized this, but if you're new with us, we really kind of break our our times with God into three sections. The first is worship, which we had a wonderful time of worship today. The second is the preaching of the word. And then finally, we want to have a time where it's possible to actually experience God, because that's part of what we believe uh, within the vineyard is that God is not some distant, uninvolved individual who um, doesn't want anything to do with his people anymore, other than just communicating with them through the Bible. (coughs) That God will heal, that God will speak outside of his word um, through others. That God still wants to touch people. And so that's really what the third part of our service is dedicated to. So if you need prayer in particular, I invite you to stay. Uh, If you just want to spend some time worshiping a a little bit more as uh, Chip and our team plays, I invite you to do that. (coughs) If you're curious about what it looks like when God comes and touches people, it's okay to stay for that too. That's how I learned. I went to a a healing service and I was just absolutely fascinated by what I saw happening. And it really stirred an interest in me to want to know more, to want to understand this better. Uh, So it's okay if you're just curious to stick around. Or if you just want to be touched by God, then stick around too. If you need to go, if you have to, have plans today or you're heading out of town, uh, for a long weekend, um, then please feel free to go a- a- as well so we 're just going to pray and then um, kind of move into this part. The only thing we ask is that if you um, want to just kind of stay in fellowship, if you would just kind of move across the hall and uh, and hang out there, that would be great. Uh, so, Father, I just thank you for for your word today. For helping us to understand that you are good and that there is nothing that you do that in any way tempts us to sin. That when it comes to sin, we are our own worst enemies. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to each person here what specific area that you want them to target with this challenge this week what do you want to work on because we want to work on what you want us to work on so speak to us in that way lord that whatever it is that you want correct in us, you make clear Bless all those who uh, have gathered here today. Keep them healthy, keep them safe, keep them in your word in the week ahead. We pray that you would bring them all back to us. We just give you thanks and praise, Father God. And we lift this time to you.